Welcome to this episode. <laughs> Wait, I could. Welcome to this episode of The Secret Lives of the Less Than Famous. <laughs> Today. I just got really excited. Right. <laughs> We're not talking about it. No. Okay, we'll start over. Yeah, I mean, I do. I feel like I need to preface the Hambone story. I didn't know, even know if you'd remember the Hambone story because it happened so long ago and it seemingly was such a small part of your day. Yeah, but I... It, so so I have to explain. Okay. <laughs> and i got to take these headphones off too. There we go. <laughs> so... The headphones lasted a minute and a half. <laughs> I am... In my 50s, and I'm still learning things about myself, right? Um, One of the things that I have just recently learned is that I have a social anxiety disorder, right? This came to light yesterday. I was in my office by myself. I'm working on the computer. And um, my back is to the door, the way I have my office set up. And there was a man who came into my office that I didn't hear him come in until after he was already in the office. I haven't seen him in several years, but I know his name. I turn around, and, and he's standing in my office, and I know his name, and yet he introduces himself to me, right? And I said, oh, I know who you are. And for some reason, um, I began to blush, right? And as I began to blush... I felt my face getting hotter and hotter. And and I, I know I probably was like cherry red. And and that was making it worse. So I felt mm-hmm. like I had flames coming <clears throat> off my face. And I could tell that he noticed that I was blushing because he kind of looked like, are you, are you okay? What did I just walk in? And I'm like, I swear I was working on my calendar. That's all I was doing, right? And I'm like... Okay, I gotta Google this, so I Google it, and and you can actually take medication if you blush easily, right? And, or there's these things that you can do. Like one is, um, you can smile when you, when you feel like you're beginning to blush, you smile, and that kind of trips your body out into thinking that you're actually comfortable in this situation, hmm. right? Because what's happening is you're getting uncomfortable in a situation, and so then that begins to manifest with the blushing and stuff. Um, One of the things is you could tell a joke, or you could acknowledge the blushing. Like, man, my face is turning really red right now, and I don't know why. It's kind of goofy, but I've got this thing, right? It's a social anxiety. So, But I'm like, that explains it. That explains why I'm able to stand in the pulpit and talk to hundreds of people and I don't get butterflies. I don't get anxious. That never happens to me. I don't get stage fright. It's the after speaking when I have to greet people. Mm-hmm. That's when I get anxious. Huh. It's when I'm talking to somebody that I don't really know, or I'm in a room full of people that I don't really know. I'd rather just kind of, you know, disappear. So one of the coping mechanisms over the years that has developed is to be kind of try to be funny, right? Mm -hmm. So if everybody's going to be looking at you and your face is all red and stuff, 
you, you know, make them laugh, make them. <laughs> so that's a coping mechanism. So my mom always thought I was either going to be a preacher or a comedian, mm-hmm. right? Because <laughs> you just love being the life of the party. And the truth is, I hate being the the, the center of attention in a, in a room, mm-hmm. right? I don't mind being up on stage. I don't mind sitting in a room like this with a couple of people that I know really well. But I get really weirded out around strangers or in groups, even if I know everybody in the group, mm-hmm. you know. And it took 50 years to find that out. Wow. So that's why I've used humor as a coping mechanism. Well, whatever that is, I've got it too, because I used to get teased a lot about that at Lifeway. Is that people would, oh, yeah, yeah. People, would, people would say stuff just to get a reaction, just to, <laughs> yeah. just to watch the blush. Yeah. You know? And, of course, yeah. that makes it worse, and you blush more. <laughs> that's, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, next time, take deep breaths. Smile. Smile <laughs> and acknowledge, I have a blushing disorder. <laughs> there's actually some name for it. You know, <laughs> blushing but I don't, disorder. You can have surgery. Atlanta told me there's a surgery for it. She saw Remove it in your, your blushing glands? I, <laughs> 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 So that's or you the just, preface. Or you just get on a podcast where there's no video. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now both of y'all right. are blushing. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt it. I can feel my face getting warm. Oh, man. So all of that to say, part of the coping mechanism is like a chameleon type thing, right? So when I'm, when I'm in a social situation, then I try to adapt to that situation. And... Um, you know, if, if I'm in Ireland, you know, I, I, I noticed that I'll start speaking a wee bit like this, you know, and I don't even know it sometimes, <laughs> right? But that's a coping mechanism. I'm trying to be accepted into that uncomfortable situation mm. or whatever. And it's gotten me in trouble before. Um, I was in Dublin airport and I was really tired and I wanted to know, if, is there an earlier flight? You know, and, and the guy answered me in Gaelic and I'm like... <laughs> Oh, uh, wait a minute now. <laughs> yeah. I, I, let me put my real voice on here. I'm from Mississippi, and uh, I don't even know where I am right yeah. now. Uh, you know, so, so that's been a coping mechanism all my life. So, But it's also not just a coping mechanism. It, it makes people laugh, right? And I've been able to prank people and stuff because of this ability to do accents. Um, one of my favorite... Uh, was uh, Brian Dinker, who you had on the program yeah. before, mm-hmm. um, who is a very godly man and probably is, you know, really doesn't want this to be made public, but, but he and his wife, in celebration of their anniversary one year, um, went <coughs> skinny dipping, right? Um, mm-hmm. It was totally his wife's idea. Can't imagine Brian Dinker ever... <laughs> Having that idea, I can totally imagine Cindy coming up with it. Uh-huh. Um, but it was in a public fountain, right? <laughs> so, so Brian goes to work the next day, just overcome with guilt. Oh no! Right, and uh, his coworker says. Oh, you'll never believe. My son's a security guard with Jackson Energy, and you'll never believe what he saw last night. These two really large people went skinny dipping it, and Brian was like, <laughs> He stopped breathing, right? He's like, oh, my gosh. I thought we were alone in a public fountain, right? So now he realizes there may be video of this, right? 
And this, this was, you know, years ago, but still there were security cameras and stuff. So, <clears throat> you know how kind and, and loving of a friend I am <laughs> to my friends. Yeah. I, I call Brian the next day and I go, this is Officer O'Malley of the Jackson Vice Squad. Right. So, so I'm doing an, an Irish accent for an Irish cop. I don't think we have an Irish cop in Jackson, but that's the stereotype, right? The paddy wagon, that's <laughs> right. an Irish cop, right? right? So this is Officer O'Malley with the Jackson Vice Squad. Is this Mr. Decker? And he goes, uh, I'm Brian Dinker. And he goes, Mr. Decker, there was an incident. <laughs> and I go in to retell the story, you know, about... The fountain, and there was a security security tape, and and Brian is about to. I think he's about to really have a heart attack, right? And he's totally buying it. And he's going, um, well, Office, Officer O'Malley, um, it was my anniversary, and I said, oh, is this a common way you celebrate your anniversary by getting into your birthday suit in a public place? And he goes, no, no, sir. He says, I, I'm actually a minister, and I go, oh, you're a man of the cloth. Maybe you. Should have had your cloth on when you're in skinny dipping. You know, so, so I just keep it's ridiculous, right? But he is so wrought with guilt, he's buying every bit of it. <laughs> so um, he said, Actually, officer, it was my anniversary and it was my wife's idea. And I said, Oh, now that's a man for you, blaming the little woman. You know, so anyway, about that time, Cindy goes, Brian, are you okay? And he goes, Oh, Cindy, it's the vice squad. <laughs> and she said, Brian Dinker, Jackson, Tennessee doesn't have a vice squad. That's Patrick Beard. Yeah. <laughs> and she got on the phone and, and she gave me what for her. <laughs> and I might, oh you know, gosh. so sometimes I call it, you know, like death. It's deathly funny, possibly. So, yeah. so all of that to say, your dad. Um, grew up out at Stanton, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, on the farm, uh, there was a gentleman named Spooljack, right? Mm-hmm. Spooljack's ancestors had lived on that farm for who knows how long. Yeah. And um, your father's father uh, allowed Spooljack to live on the property in exchange for kind of keeping an eye on things and all that. And I think Spooljack had like, you know, your grandfather may have gotten him out of jail and stuff at times. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's the culture that that your dad grew up in, right? So just, <laughs> I don't know why I did it, but I call him, and this is before caller ID, sure. right? And um, I actually was pretending to be Spooljack, but I couldn't remember Spooljack's name. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> so I said, uh, uh, Mr. Dewey, <laughs> this is a ham bone. Oh, gosh. And he said, ham bone? I said, yes, sir, you know me. <laughs> I'm ham bone. Now, that's exactly what Spooljack sounds like, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So, so he goes, okay, ham bone, what can I do for you? And so I go on to explain that my vehicle's broken down. Uh-huh. You know, I said, I'm, I'm up here in Stanton, up here at the White Church, you know, the Presbyterian Church. He goes, yeah, I know right where you're at. And I said, uh, I need a trip to Walmart. <laughs> Walmart's 45 minutes from Stanton, right? And he's going, ham bone, ham bone. I don't know ham bone, right? And uh, he said, okay, I'll be there to get you. I'll be, I'll, it'll be just a few minutes, and I'll, I'll take you to Walmart, Hambone. Because he's thinking, surely, this is somebody your grandfather knows, yeah. right? And so, anyway, I said, well, uh, he said, what are you driving, uh, Hambone? I said, I, I'm in a gray Honda Civic. And I was trying to give it away that it was me, right? Because uh-huh. <laughs> we had a gray 
Honda Civic. And I said, and I got 14 children <laughs> with me. Uh, you can just throw them in the back of your truck. <laughs> and he still didn't know it was a prank, right? So <laughs> anyway, I just couldn't keep going. And I told I said, hey, Julian, it's Patrick. <laughs> And he hung up the phone. <laughs> and I called him back. And he hung up the phone. I, I, I'm like, hey, Julian, I don't know. Hang up. I hang up the phone. So and I'm like, I call him again. Hey, Julian, I really need to He just kept hanging up on me. And I actually needed something. And my wife was like, that's what you get for pranking your friends. See? So anyway. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I w- wanted to hear that story from your side for a long time. <laughs> your dad's side is probably... Um, well, mom knew immediately. <laughs> so, See, women do. I can't fool women. Yeah. So, <laughs> Well, apparently, uh, you know, dad's, you know, dad's trying to, he's trying to figure it out. Like, you know, I've never heard of Hambone, but it's got to be one of my dad's <laughs> friends. And, and mom is just rolling. Like, because she can hear, like, hear your voice over the phone receiver or whatever. And she's just on the bed, just rolling around and... um yeah, it, it, it's a good story. <laughs> I I've, I don't do that nearly as frequently. I have, matter of fact, I haven't done that in a while. So, I, almost killing Brian Dinker was probably a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you when we had you on, what are some of the crazier stories that you have uh, <coughs> acquired during your time as a missionary? Hmm. Well, I'd, I probably have a lot, but there's a a couple that come to mind. I mean, you know, I've got a lot of tear jerking kind of stories yeah, yeah. too, but um, there, there's a life lesson that I learned in Brazil when I was in college. And um, <clears throat> we were down in equatorial Brazil, but this is not the jungle area. This is like, it's desert. Northeast Brazil is really dry. And, and um, we were going door to door visiting people for this little church plant you know, and it was so hot. I mean, we were just, we were exhausted. We were, we were burning up hot. We get back to the missionary's house, and we were just really thirsty. And there were these glasses sitting on the table that that were, you know, sweating. They were so nice and cold. And in those glasses, it looked like grape juice. And we're like, oh, man, this is going to be so good, you know. And we sit down, and, and we all take a swig, and, and just about all, you know, like spit at the same time. And what is that? And the pastor's going, oh, it's Betty Haba. And Betty Haba is beet juice, right? So, like, fresh beets taste like dirt. <laughs> That's what a beet tastes like, yeah. right? And they squeeze these beets, and now it tastes like mud. And they squeeze a lemon in it. To make it, you know, more palatable. There's no sugar in it. I mean, it's a beet, right? It's just like drinking a big glass of mud. <laughs> so we don't want to offend the pastor. So we all finish off our Betty Haba, right? And put our glass down. And he goes, would you like some more? And we're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> we're all about to throw up, right? And he pours everybody a second glass. <clears throat> and then in Portuguese, he says to his wife, wow. These Americans, I can't believe they like Betty Haba. I think it's nasty. I only drink it for my health, but they ask for more. (laughs) So we're thinking, there you go. Life lesson. Tell the truth. Betty Haba is nasty. (laughs) 
Just say it. No, I don't. No, thank you. One cup of mud is sufficient. <laughs> uh-huh. That's, I stop at one cup. Yeah. You know, so. Well, I had a similar experience in Ethiopia. <clears throat> and this is the same trip that you took us on. I don't know if you were aware, but uh, they just about drowned me in potatoes that one night. And they, you know, they had pulled up their whole crop of potatoes. They had a whole field. The whole field's, you know, oh, pulled yeah. up just for us. And uh, we're in a little little town of Tatessa, up, way up on a mountain. And um, they're just so excited that we're here. So they pull up this whole thing, this whole crop of potatoes, and they bring it out on, like, what looks like a mountain and set it in the middle of the... <clears throat> and uh, this was dessert. So they had actually just fed us, like, as much spaghetti as we could want. And so these potatoes for dessert. And I was sitting next to this guy who thought, I don't know, I must be a human waste container because he just kept tossing them to me over and over. And I think I had 12 potatoes at night before I finally stumbled out of that hut saying, I got to get some fresh air. <laughs> but... It, it's okay to say now. Yeah. You can say now. I need to learn that. I'm full. <laughs> that was a great example of hospitality, ex- experiencing that up on the up on the mountaintop. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah. You know, this small village, and they didn't have much to share, but they shared it all. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was kind of a powerful moment. So. I had a meal, not in Tatessa, but it was another village like that. The corn had just come in, right? So we had corn, wild honey, and sour bread. And, I mean, I just ate and ate. And it was it was the best fresh corn. And, mm-hmm. you know, we'd rub that honey on it and stuff. And yeah. It's got that wild flavor to it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Any other memorable experiences? I've got one <laughs> that I don't know if I should share. <laughs> There's actually a lot. That I don't know if I should share. Well, last time you shared the pit latrine story. (laughs) Yeah, it goes downhill from there. (laughs) Okay. In more ways than one. Well, there's like traveling experience, right? So there's things that you learn. Just by doing these things, you learn things, right? So like I learned, this was, again, years ago, um, airport security was not nearly as stringent as it is now. And they didn't have those those body X-ray things, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so when you would go through the Netherlands, if you set off the um, the metal detector, you would get a full body pat down. And I learned that the hard way. I didn't take my belt off because they used to not say take your belt off, and it set off the metal detector. And of course, it sets off the metal detector at my mid, you know, <laughs> mid body, right? So, you know, we got to check the area that made it beep, right? <clears throat> so I got real friendly with a security guard. <laughs> yeah. And um, it was like, it was, he, he, um, wow. You know, <laughs> it, it was very intimate, right? Well, when you do the same thing day after day, to to the person yeah, who does no, it day after day, no, there's, there's... this guy's a perv. He okay. was a perv. <laughs> Just trying to give him because the benefit he, of the doubt. He could here. tell. He could tell. I didn't have any weapon okay. there. He didn't need to linger oh, nearly as trying long to do as him a he favor did. Here. <laughs> right. So so I learned that the hard way, right? Wow. So um, Stephen Kennedy, 
has started traveling with me, right? And he was he's 20 years younger than me. And um, we're going through security in Amsterdam, and he forgot to take his belt off. Now, I've already been through security, and the way they do it there is there's security at each gate, right? So I went ahead and just took my seat and just got ready for the show. Because <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Kennedy, you know, he was, he was not married yet. Um, I guess the last time, you know, that area had ever been inspected when his mama changed the last diaper, right? So, so he's, he's young. He's, he's a very wholesome guy. And he didn't take his belt off. So I sit down and I watch as they begin to give him the pat down. And that guy gets a hold, I mean, a firm grip, you know, of his crotch. And the look on Stephen Kennedy's face. You talk about a blushing disorder. <laughs> oh, my gosh. He stopped breathing. He was like. <laughs> oh and God. so, you know, again, I'm this kind, considerate, compassionate guy. I mean, I'd been right where he was a few years <clears throat> earlier. And Stephen came and he, he sat down and I could tell he had been traumatized by the whole thing. <laughs> and I said, uh, would you like a cigarette? <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I got, I'm here all night, folks. <laughs> it's not this, exactly stories you can tell in the pulpit, yeah. I guess. This, so, is, right? this is what comes from how many years as a missionary? <laughs> 20, over 20, something. Yeah. Man. Were you on the trip where Ben Williams put a sword on the very oh, top of his... yes. <laughs> okay, so this is post-9-11, right? Because uh-huh. we've all learned. You don't carry a sword in your carry-on. <laughs> Right. <clears throat> We're coming back from Ethiopia. He bought an FR sword. And uh, we arrive in London, and there is a flight that's like three hours earlier than the flight that we're <clears> going to take home. And we're just ready to be home. So the guy says, oh, yeah, mate, if you'd like to catch that other flight, I'll just pull your bags, and you can just take them, you know, run to the other terminal and go through security and all that. What we, what we had failed to realize is that Ben had a sword in his checked bag, right? So we're going to check his bags at the gate, not realizing we're going to have to go back through security because we're going through a different terminal. And as we get up to the security <clears throat> station, putting all of our bags up there, and there's a, a Sikh guy, you know, the guys that wear the turbans. They're not Muslim. They're Sikh, right? And so he's, he's just kind of sitting there like half awake, half asleep, <laughs> The bags are going across. He's watching the monitor and stuff. And then his eyes just got like bug eyed. And he goes, Oh my goodness, you must be kidding me. And he starts making a backward and forward and backward and forward. He goes, Look at this. There is a sword in this bag. This must be a joke. And I'm thinking, Ben Williams, you moron. You're trying. You try to carry a sword through security. <laughs> so not only did we miss that flight, we almost missed the other flight. Oh, yeah. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you go from there? I know, man. So I I don't know. I'm. Um, well, we were we were talking earlier about. Um, yeah, this this ability to mimic, yeah. right? 
and yeah. <clears throat> um, almost like a, a defense mechanism or whatever. But it's also, I think, it's kind of a gift, right? So, like, when I'm in Ethiopia, I can I can hear Amharic, although I may not understand, you know, what exactly is being said. I may not know the vocabulary, but mm-hmm. but I can hear the the. It's a very phonetic alphabet and things like that, you know. So the ability to hear that and then to be able to kind of mimic that is, is kind of a gift. But um, I've got a daughter that, that says I'm actually a racist <laughs> because I can do that. So so when I tell these stories, I'm aware, um, you know, I'm, I, I don't want to make fun of anybody because there is injustice and there are... Um, there is racism. I mean, it's a real, it's a, it's a real deal. I think everybody has a certain amount of 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 prejudice in their mind based on their experiences, right? Um, but then I think we've kind of, as as a culture, we've gone so far to try to to um, to deal with that 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 it's gotten to a um, I don't know, kind of a bizarre place Mm -hmm. um well it seems to me like that as a society i mean in every way legislatively and in culture we keep trying to it'd be like a doctor trying to fix the symptoms and not the not cure the problem yeah i mean it's like i don't know I, i mean i don't know a great example of of how you know a doctor would do that but it just seems silly to me if to make legislation that doesn't fix the problem when the problem is much deeper down uh and i i mean connor and i have talked about uh it just seems it just seems rather simple to me that that if you can if you can convince all of the young adults to just take responsibility then then a lot of the problems will be solved i mean like because the problem the reason that we have a lot of like delinquent uh adolescents is because they didn't have fathers at home and the reason we don't have and the reason they they're not around because their dads weren't around it's like somewhere in history like that that became an issue and i think if 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 fathers started hanging around the house and being role models for their kids like all of a sudden you'd have a you'd have a whole new rejuvenation of of society I think that would fix uh, just about every problem that you want to fix. I mean, crime rate, divorce rate, uh, inequality, even stuff like that. So, well, I, th- I think it is is part of the the duty of the church to address injustice. Right? We're supposed to seek justice and mercy. And I I know of churches that had set out to. To, to address the, the problem of racism, particularly in America, right? One reason why we have so much racism in America is because we have so many races in America, mm-hmm. right? And we talked about earlier, I've, I've experienced racism in Ethiopia. I've experienced racism in Germany. Mm-hmm. I, so racism is not a uniquely American problem. It's a, it's a human problem, right, based on our experiences or our, our um, perception of people based on our, our parents' experiences or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So I think racism is mostly a nurturing thing. It's not a, it's not something we're we're born racist. We're just kind of nurtured into that, mm-hmm. right? So um, I know of a church that tried to address this problem specifically, 
by um, um, uh, denying the diversity within the body of Christ, right? I, what I'm saying is they were trying to embrace diversity, right? But the way that they were trying to embrace diversity was to erase the things that make us different. So then, you know, we're just this one group. We're just the body of Christ, and there is no race in the body of Christ, right? There's no longer male nor female. There's no longer Jew nor Greek. We're, we're just one, right? And that sounds like kind of a Christian ideal, but the way it panned out was it became very negative against um, Anglo-Saxon culture, right? And, um, and then begins to promote um, other cultures within that, within that uh, congregation to the exclusion of other cultures, right? So, so I kind of feel like this is almost an antichrist trick. It's trickery, right? When in reality... Um, the body of Christ is very diverse, right? So when Scripture says there's no longer male nor female, Jew nor Greek, it doesn't mean that you've stopped being a Greek. It doesn't mean you stop being a male. Mm-hmm. You're still a, a Greek male in the body of Christ. What that particular passage is talking about is salvation. My wife, my little Irish, English, you know, wife, is a full son of God in the kingdom of God. She inherits salvation. She gets she gets to inherit the kingdom hmm. just like I do, even though she's not a male and she's not a Jew. Okay. Right? That's the whole point of that passage. But the beauty of the church is the um the diversity within the church being celebrated, right? So here's a great example. I'm going through Saudi Arabia on and on the way from somewhere to somewhere and <laughs> Saudi Arabia is my, my stopover, and um, I've flown so much, I get to go into these first-class lounges sometimes and things like that. So the first-class lounge in Riyadh is, oh, my goodness, you know, it's just amazing. And um, you can sit there and look out over the terminal, right, see all the gates and stuff, right? So I'm sitting there, and it's prayer time, Right. So the prayers start, all the men go to one side, all the women go to another. And in Saudi Arabia, it's, it's, the, it's the most extreme example I've ever seen of this, where every woman has on a, a burqa, right? Some of them you can see their eyes, you know. Some of them you, you can see, you know, just their, just their face with no hair showing. And some you can't even see, you just see a screen, right? Mm. The only variety in the clothing was, is it a slit, is it the face, or is it the screen? Everything else, it's black, you're just blacked out. All the men in Saudi Arabia, in the airport, were dressed in white, right? They all had their white robes on, and the only difference is uh, some of them had on like a skull cap kind of a thing, Mm -hmm. and it was white, or some of them would have like the the head covering with the little uh, black... uh, ropes around their head, and, and some of them would have what I'd call the yasser, you know, the, like the red and white checked uh, head covering with the little black ropes around it, right? That's it. That's as, that's, that's as much as you get to express yourself in Saudi Arabia. And all the men are on one side, or all the women are on the other, and they're all doing the exact same thing at the exact same time, up, down, kneel, up, down, up, you know, so it's, it's this uniformity 
of, of a nameless, faceless mass, right? At the same time, I'm sitting on my computer and I'm watching a, a, a flash mob. And it's somewhere in France. It's this beautiful <coughs> little court square kind of thing, right? And a guy walks up with a metal chair and a cello, and he, he's got on a tuxedo, and he sits down, and he starts playing the cello. And it's joyful, joyful, we adore thee, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, then somebody walks up, and they just happen to have a violin, right? It's a flash mob. So they start playing along, then another guy comes up. Well, but by the end of the video, you've got a full choir, baritone, you know, uh, whatever, all those different things. Yeah. You've got a full string section. You've got a full brass section. And they've all come together in this little village square, and they're playing this beautiful music. Some of them got shorts on. Some of them got jeans on. Some got tuxedo. But everybody looked different, and everybody did something different. But by doing those things differently together, it was this beautiful symphony. And, and I just began to weep. And I'm like, that's the difference <clears throat> right there. Uh, Jesus comes that we might have life and have it abundantly. He, he doesn't erase you as a person. You don't become a nameless, faceless mass that just, oh, my. You, you do your thing your way, the way God's made you to do it. Mm. As, as, as a man... As, as a, a Scots descent, whatever, all of that goes into making you who you are today, and and God does all that for a purpose, and He takes all that individuality and puts you into this body, and the the result's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's to me that's the the sad part of dealing with racism by trying to deny people their unique their uniqueness or what it, what it is about them, their culture, their language, their color of their skin, whatever. It, it's not that we want to be colorblind. That's kind of stupid, really. I'm, anytime right. I hear somebody, oh, I'm colorblind, I'm like, no, you're not. You're, you're, you are a liar, but you're not colorblind. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> what we should do instead is we should find the beauty in all of that diversity, that God has created. I mean, if God wanted his people to be this uniform, nameless, you know, uh, faceless mass, then all of creation would be that way. We'd just, we'd be on a white square floating around in the universe or a black square and everything would just be uniform. But that's not God. I mean, look, how many varieties of trees are there? I don't know. We're still discovering species of, of insects and animals. We don't even know how many animals don't even exist anymore that we never even knew about. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about a God that loves diversity? So it, to, to be able to embrace that and draw from it rather than deny it, I think is probably God's plan. Mm. But the Antichrist wants you to say, no, there's, there's absolutely no differences. Does, there's, there's not male, there's not female, there's there's no there are no races, you know everything is just this this blank nothingness. Mm-hmm. That's that's not Christianity, you know, and that's a mis that's a misreading of that passage and what it is that's being communicated, mm-hmm. you know, by a by a Jewish guy that was like the 
the most studied Jewish guy <laughs> that there was who's, who's, yeah. who's giving advice to the church and saying, <clears throat> look, these, these, <clears throat> he's not saying that, that this doesn't exist anymore. It's that God has, God has um, done something really wonderful here. This is not just a Jewish religion. It's not just a Greek religion. It's not just a man religion. It's not just a woman religion. It's, it's that we've all become the inheritors of the kingdom of God through Jesus. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty wonderful. Yeah. So. yeah. That's huge. So you're talking about the difference between, I think you used the words unity and uniformity. Yeah. Like that's the distinction that you made. Yeah. And that's a huge distinction. Um uniformity is on the outside you know unity is as deep as the heart is yeah. as deep as the heart goes um so we can try to fake unity on the outside as as a culture as a country um but we've got to have something deep that unites us all to make it real and sincere yeah and i guess that's the question at this point is what is that thing that unites us all as a people and get, when you get rid of Judeo-Christian principles underneath everything, it's hard to find a good replacement for that. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's, it's kind of sad, but it's true that um, when, you have a, when you have a common enemy, that will produ- produce um, unity, right? So, um, and it's not that everybody's on board. I mean, I don't think you'll ever have you know, 100% a united country, right? right. There's right. always been a variety of opinions. But um, do you remember September the 12th? Yeah. yeah. Everybody was flying an American flag. It seemed like. I mean, it, you, you were afraid not to almost. We are standing together. You know, you might have kicked us, but we are not down. And, right, and the most recent scandal over the flag is declaring, you know, the Betsy Ross flag is a racist symbol. And I'm like, what? What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so the, the, thing that, the thing that would kind of bring us together, I think, is one of two things. Fear or a true, a true um, spirit of unity, right? And fear is the easiest thing. So the politicians use it. Both sides, they completely use fear. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be awesome if we had a candidate running for president that played to the strengths of the country and said, you know, look, we've got some problems, but at the end of the day, we're all Americans. <coughs> and what is America all about, right? Start cueing the, the patriotic music at this <laughs> point, right? But there are some pretty wonderful things about America, right? I mean, just uh, freedom of association. Oh, my goodness. We, we can sit here in this room right now, and there's no secret government agency, <laughs> right? So <laughs> listening to what we're saying, I mean, I, we just have an enormous amount of freedom in this country. Uh, there's an enormous amount of prosperity in this country, and there's an enormous amount of opportunity in this country. And I'm not going to say, oh, man, you know, America, boy, you just, it's, it's just the best ever. That there's, um, I think it's pretty good, though. I mean, why do people from all over the world want to come to America? It's because of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many stories do you know of people who grew up in some village in some distant ca- country, they moved to America, and they've got $20 in their, po- in their pocket, 
And now they, they own a chain of convenience stores or they own a hotel or they, they've started a, a university. I mean, it, uh, we're a whole country of immigrants. There's, there are very few countries in the world that would accept people from all over the world and, and you have the opportunity to better your life. I mean, that's, that's really a wonderful thing. Wouldn't it be great if we had a politician that could play to those kind of strengths rather than the fears mm-hmm. that we have? But, you know, fear, that's what, that's, that's a, a very strong motivator. So. Well, especially in a traditional, the traditional media, you have less than a minute to get your point across. You oh. know, podcasts are growing where you can really hash this stuff out, but it's still kind of in its early stages. So maybe, maybe the, as the format changes, the, the, uh, the pool of candidates to draw from will get better also. I hope so. Yeah. Well, here's another example um, along the same lines of what you're talking about. So I've mentioned this in another podcast, but um, with the common goal now of of keeping our son alive, my wife and I feel extremely unified. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's ironic because we're, a- we're actually spending less time focused on each other. Now we're focused on this common goal, but mm-hmm. it's the common goal that that uh, gives us a purpose that we, you know, something that we didn't have before. Um, and it's extremely rewarding. Yeah. So, you know, it, an experience like that really shapes the way I look at the world. And I think, well, okay, so you need a common purpose in life for multiple people to be working on together for mm-hmm. there to be this real unity that's, that's true and deep. Yeah. Well, this, this was... Uh this was the philosophy behind the, like the church growth movement a few years ago, was you give everybody a common task, right, a common goal, mm-hmm. and you'll produce unity in the church. And that common goal, more often than not, was to build a big building, right? Kind of the, I call it the field of dreams syndrome, where if you build it, they will come, right? Well, there are a lot of big buildings now even in America, not just Europe, that are sitting empty. Mm-hmm. Because once you build that building, all that, all that excitement, all that whatever, all that mojo you had going on, mm-hmm. it's gone. So if you don't have another big project to replace it, then you know, it's going to die out. So you've always got to have some kind of, and I don't, I'll be careful here, it's not always superficial. Some of these projects are worthwhile. Right? I'm not saying that they're not, but when it's project-focused and not a relationship focus, then when that project's done, your unity's over, I and mean, it's over. And, and matter of fact, these projects tend to produce more disunity than they do unity because somebody thinks it should be blue, somebody thinks it should be red, somebody thinks it should be gray, right? And then people get mad, and then they go somewhere where they can have the blue or they can, you know, and... Um, Walton and I were talking about this this morning that, you know, back to the podcast before where we were talking about, you know, how, what, what, what's the thing that we can do? What can I do if I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm slipping away? If, you know, if, if I'm, if I feel myself leaving the faith or if I want to or whatever, what, you know, and I kind of jokingly said, well, that, you know, they need to get baptized, you know. Because that was the simple answer, and um, so I've I've had several conversations since then about what 
what is the answer? I mean, uh, I know for the young person, it's, it's usually stop sinning, right? So um, there's something that makes you feel lost. Stop doing that or, or do the thing that you're not doing, right? But then that can lead to legalism, right? So as long as I'm checking the boxes off, well, then I'm good. And Walton said this morning something that I thought, yeah, this, this really is the answer, but it's not an easy answer. And, and that is, um, it really is about a relationship, right? It's a relationship with God. If you don't nurture that relationship with God, it grows cold. Um, and that the church, really, the purpose of the church, at least in part, is to encourage you in that relationship with God. So if what's happening at the church is exciting or it's whatever, but you're not being encouraged to develop that relationship with Christ, then it's all going to fall away. And I, I think that's what begins to happen. So say, for example, I, I have a, a particular besetting sin, right? Whatever that sin may be. Um, for me, it's my tongue. It's my mouth. My mouth gets me in trouble, right? So I have a choice here. I can say, well, I mean, God knows. God knows because he made me. He made this mouth, you know. So um, Scripture says I need to control my tongue. But God knows it's impossible. I, I mean, I could sooner steer a ship with a rudder than I could control my own tongue. So rather than trying to control my tongue, I just make excuses. And then I, I continue to use my mouth and my mouth gets me in trouble. And, and you know, so, so I actually have to take seriously my relationship with Jesus at some point, just like I have to take seriously my relationship with my wife. First got married, I, it was passion. Man, we could not wait to get married we're young, we're both 21, got our whole life ahead of us, and we love each other, and we just want to be together. And then, you know, pretty soon after that, it's like, wow, um, I've, got to, I've got to, like, sacrifice here if this is going to work, mm. right? There's some things I need to start doing. Like, I've, I'm going to have to work harder so that we have money, Right. I'm going to have to uh, um, change my behavior, right? Because something I do is going to irritate my wife. Maybe it's, maybe it's the toothpaste, right? Like I roll it up from the end, she squeezes from the middle, all right? <laughs> Drove me up the wall. And this is stupid, right? But when you're used to rolling your toothpaste up and you go to brush your teeth and the toothpaste is squished in the middle, it just... <laughs> mm, <laughs> Do I really love this woman? Am I willing to spend the rest of my life with this squashed up toothpaste? Yeah. Right? So I went to the store and I bought my own tube of toothpaste. <laughs> and we've been happy ever since. <laughs> right? She has her toothpaste in her drawer. I don't care if she doesn't put the cap back on. She squishes it in the middle. <laughs> I couldn't care less. Because I got my little part with the clip on the end and all that, <laughs> yeah. and I can brush my teeth. So we figured out a way to make that work so that those irritations, I actually had to do something to work on those irritations, right? So now, 
we're getting into our 50s, and it's like we've been married for over 30 years, right? There's some things that I do that irritate her. There's still some things she does that irritate me, and we just don't care anymore, right? It's not that we don't love each other. We, we, we love each other enough that we've just let that go, right? Um, she's never going to close that bottom drawer on the oven all the way, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's really okay. I don't even care because I love this woman, you know? Um, so there's things that we need to work on, and then there's things we need to accept. And I, I got to thinking about what I said last time, that I don't have questions anymore. I mean, it's not completely true. You're always going to have questions. Like, something bad happens, the first thing you need to do is say, what? Yeah. Why? I mean, so it's not that I don't have any questions anymore. It's just that the things that I don't like about God, I just accept it. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with God. Don't hear me saying that. Um, but there's things that I think, like, you know, I've heard the question, why doesn't God save everybody? Well, he doesn't. So, so my question is, why does God save anybody, right? But ultimately, this is the way God is. And like it or not, this is who God is. And God has extended his love to you. So you accept it, right? So I, I, th- I think that maybe part of the answer is... If it's not an obedience issue, it's, it's, it's a maturing issue in that relationship with Christ to, to, um, to really accept him. You know, when, when you're young and you say, you need to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, you know, that's actually a really good way of putting it. You need to accept. You need to accept that he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he is not like you. And yet he humbled himself, became a man. You know, he, uh, so all these things that Scripture says about him uh, are true. And there's things I don't like. But I need to accept those things. And he says that I need to be conformed to the image of Christ. I, I need to be made more like Jesus. And that doesn't happen by not being me anymore, but by being the me that he created me to be, Right? If I'm a toe, or what I used to say, I'm the armpit in the body of Christ, right? Because <laughs> everybody's like, you know, we are one body and we're all various parts. And I'm like, the armpit's better than some parts. I'm just saying, <laughs> right? So without an armpit, can't move that arm, you know, it'd be kind of useless. So, um, <laughs> so are you a hand? Are you the mouth? No, I'm the armpit. <laughs> so, um, but, but accepting that, right? I mean, if, I don't don't really know that I am the armpit of Jesus, but but how God has made me to to accept that this is the way He's made me to be more like Him. So everything that about me and my personality that is not like Him, that needs to stop. That needs to go away. So if it's not if it's me using my mouth to curse, I need to stop that. If it's controlling my emotions. I need, to, I need to control my emotions. He's given me his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit is manifest in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the things that I need to enact. I need to do those things. I mean, I've got his Spirit. So if I'm not engaging Christ and, and those fruits 
or I'm not, you know, uh, fostering the growth of that fruit, well, then I'm going to become discouraged and I'm going to become further and further away. I've, it's, it's, it's not legalism where I just check off the box. Well, you know, well, I didn't do this and I didn't do this and I did, and I did this and I did this and I did this. It's actually a relationship that's got to be nurtured. So, What does that look like? What does that look like? To, to nurture a relationship with somebody that you can't see. Well, you got to get your own tube of toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not trying to sound like, you know, aiming at you or anything, but I, I, I'm genuinely curious because this is something that I've been asking in my life. How do yeah. I, how do I, I mean, is, is it reading, is it, is it just sitting down and reading the scriptures or, or is it, do you have to go a step beyond and like think about the scriptures? And it's like all these questions like that where, I mean, frankly, at the end of the day, it seems like it, no difference has been made. Yeah. Um, so... Well, you've got to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only, right? So here's um, a thought that I have. Uh, you know, Lauren, who's totally disabled, has a seizure disorder. She can't walk, she can't talk. She's 21 years old and changed her diapers for 21 years. And... Um, um, she, when she was little, was learning how to crawl, right? We knew that she had uh, a brain issue. We knew that she was developing slowly. But she was working really hard with the therapist, and she was kind of doing like an army man kind of crawl, right? And she couldn't say mama, but she'd say, huh, ah. And she couldn't say daddy. She could say, ah. So there was ah, and there was uh, and mm-hmm. we knew that's daddy and that's mama. And she had almost got to where she could say love. So we would go, I love you. And she'd go, ooh, right? And she worked so hard to say those three almost words. And then one day she got a walker. And it was like one of these things you strap into, Right. And she couldn't go forward, but she made herself go back, go backwards. And she was so excited. And we've got it on video, and everybody's cheering. And she's just thrilled, you know. And she could finally get a spoon up to her mouth. And um, she made a huge mess, but she could feed herself just a little bit. And then one day we noticed that she kind of twitched in a weird way. And we're like, what's that? And then one day she's kind of staring off into nothing and we can't get her out of it. And then she pops out of it. And then she starts, you know, jerking and and twitching. And um, it got worse. And then she couldn't crawl anymore because she was having drop seizures. And we got afraid that she was going to smash her face on the floor because a drop seizure, you just lose all the tone in your body and you just pop, right? So we stopped putting her in the floor because we didn't want her to smash her face. And then she got to where um, she stopped trying to talk. And then she got to where she wouldn't even hold her spoon. And it was because of those seizures, right? And 
I could honestly say, even then, that God had used cerebral palsy to change my life for the better. Like, IOI would not exist if Lauren had not had cerebral palsy, right? So I could sit here and say, thank you, God, for cerebral palsy, because it's made all of our lives different than they would have been, and I think better, even though it's really hard. But I can't say, um, thank God uh, for those seizures. And I told Lana, I said, you know, Scripture says to be thankful or to give thanks in all things, right? It doesn't say give thanks in the things that you like. It doesn't say give thanks when you feel like it. It says be thankful in all things, right? But I can't. There is no way I can say thank God for those blasted seizures. They have robbed her of everything she had worked so hard to earn. And I will not thank God for those seizures. But I want to. Because that's what his word says. Right? So we prayed, and I said, God, I want to be able to say thank you for those seizures, and I can't. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Right? And this is not made up. This is a fact. It was just a short time later, we got a card in the mail from one of Lauren's therapists. And during therapy, Lauren had started having seizures. And Lana went over, you know, to be with the therapist, and she said, it's okay, she has seizures all the time, just keep going. And so Lana stayed with the therapist, and they began to talk. And they began to talk about life. And then this therapist began to tell her about some of their home life situation and how they'd been out of church, and she really missed being in church. And Lana, you know Lana, she's so quiet. She's not an evangelist. She's, mm -hmm. you know, this one reason I married her is because she's my opposite in that way. She's so quiet. And she says to this therapist, well, why don't you come to Christ Community Church? Because um, there's a lot of us there who are struggling, and um, sometimes you need people to have faith for you. And, um, you know, we're all messed up. We're just, uh, sometimes we're strong, sometimes we're weak. That kind of a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the next Sunday, this therapist and her family came to Christ Community. And then they ended up being a regular part of Christ Community. And Zion uh, said, I want to say thank you for seizures, and I can't do it, right? So I get this card from this therapist. And she said, um, hey, thank you for telling me about Christ Community Church. We've really found a home there. We feel like our faith is being restored. Thank God. Thank God for those seizures. That... Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I took that card and I said, thank, thank God for blank seizures. And I threw it across the room. But there you go. I could honestly say that one day, Thank God for those seizures that day because it really did make a difference, right? So I think that's how you do it. I mean, we read this stuff and we think about it and we go, okay, so, so I read this, I agree, okay, this is true, 
I believe this, I'm going to think about this, but we actually have to do it, right? So be thankful in all things. Well, that's impossible, right? I mean, you can't be thankful for all things. So God, I want to be thankful. Help me to be help me to put this into action somehow. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not only then was I able to obey a passage of scripture that I had not been able to obey, but I mean, think about how that works then with your faith, how that's a faith building experience, right? And what are the chances you're going to get a card that say "Thank God for those seizures"? I mean, who writes something like that, mm-hmm. right? Sure. But yet, this is a direct answer to my prayer. And I think sometimes what we want is we say, well, sure, I mean, little stuff like that. But I mean, what about when, what about when my wife was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis? Where was God then, right? Well, God was where he's always been. The question is, where are you, you know? When you get that bad diagnosis, when you get that bad news, when you get that, when, 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 when it hits the fan, where are you? The question is not where is God. God has not moved. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's everywhere. It's how how are we responding to God? I, so I think this marriage analogy of Christ and the church, it, it's not just, oh, yeah, Christ and the church. It's like a husband and wife. The, the whole purpose that God created us male and female, the whole reason behind marriage is to display who God is, how he relates to, to you and I. It's so, so why do we think that our relationship with God would not suffer if we don't talk to him, if we don't read his letters, if we don't try to actually engage, really engage? Mm-hmm. Well, well, of course, you know, well, oh, but I have. You know, well, I, I did do that, and it didn't work. I, have you really? I mean, have you really, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your might, have you ever really loved God? I, d- I don't think I have. Mm-hmm. I, the last podcast where we were talking about, did I really love Lana? I mean, did I really, would I really be willing to give my life for her? Would I take a bullet for my wife? I don't know. But that's the way I'm supposed to love her. I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loves the church. That, that's not just a theory. That means literally, I love my wife as Christ loves the church. And when she had her cardiac arrest and she's laying there dead, I would have I given my... I mean, if my life being given up would bring her back, I wouldn't even have to think about it. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, I do love her. See, but it wasn't until that moment that I really knew, yeah, I, I really do love this one. I thought I loved this woman. I did love this one, but now I know I love this woman. So that's what all this crap in our lives is supposed to do for us. When it all hits the fan, when, when you get that diagnosis, what it, it really is supposed to draw you closer to God, not push you away. Um, and I, I think just accepting that, you know, I, I mean, when when Lana was in uh, her coma, I, who am I going to turn to? And doctors had done everything they could. Mm-hmm. I mean, am I going to turn to the universe? 
Am I going to, you know, am I going to, yeah. who am I going to turn to? Um, these are the times that your faith is really tested. Uh, we're scared to death of the dark night of the soul, right? We don't want to go there. But that's when you really know. I mean, that's when you really know, yeah, I'm in. You know. Um, so there's the, I don't know, it's a long answer, yeah. right? But that's that's what it looks like. Look, I, I don't know everything about God, but I know this about God, so I need to accept this about God, and I need to act on it. Yeah. And it's not keeping some kind of law. It's not what I'm talking about. That's that's very unfulfilling. But um, just like your wife, right? Your wife, there's something that you do that irritates her, right? Probably. Definitely. Okay. That thing that you do that irritates her, is that within your power to change? Yes. If you love her, what are you going to do? Change that. You're going to change that. So why do we expect our relationship with God to be any different? God says, um, be angry and sin not. Oh, I can be angry. <laughs> and, and, and I can sin too. Now, wait a minute. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Okay, well, I mean, that's, 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 like a, that's like an ideal. No, that's a fruit of the Spirit. You have self-control. Are you going to engage the Holy Spirit and exercise that self-control that you have? And the more you do it, the less you have to think about it, but you still have to engage in that, mm -hmm. right? It's a relationship. It's not just a religion. It's a relationship. And relationships take work, right? Yeah, and even, even with my very young son, you know, we, we give him what we call tummy time, mm. where he has to exercise his back. And so we put him on his, you know, because doctors say that, you know, they can't sleep on their stomach now. So now oh, there has right. to be regular time where they get what they would have gotten naturally. So we have times where we lay him on his stomach, and it's a very controlled, safe environment. He has no reason to be in distress, but it's still distressing. And, uh, you know, he thinks his life is in danger. Yeah. And, you know, it's really not, and it's for a very short time. But he, has, he doesn't have any sense of time, you know. Five minutes for him might as well be in eternity. Yeah, you know, and I'm I'm kind of that way too. My my grandson, right? I never wanted sons. I was happy to have five daughters. Boys tear stuff up. They're just you know, it's nothing drives me crazier than a, a little boy crying for his mama. Mama. I'm at church one day. One day, mama. I said, stop crying for your mama. Be a man. <laughs> And Lana said, he's four. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, that's right, he's four. Man up, let's go. You already have a job by now. You know? <laughs> so I have these different standards for boys than I do girls, right? But my grandson is born, and I'm thinking, grandson? Oh, my goodness. What am I going to do with this? Grandson. I don't know how to be a father to sons. How am I going to be a grandfather to grandsons? You know? Well, and at first, he was scared of me, right? I mean, because, you know, everybody in my family is around between five foot and five six, right? <laughs> that's that's kind of, I think maybe the tallest, maybe five eight, right? 
and I'm up here at six four, and I've got white hair, and I'm like, I look like a freak compared to all these normal people, right? So my grandson looks up and he sees this giant with you know white hair and just ah, you know, and I'm like, well, I don't like you too much either, <laughs> you know, messed up my streak here with all these girls, right? But um, I really didn't know how am I gonna, you know, how am I gonna have a relationship with this kid? I mean, right? Well, now, I mean, his first word was granddaddy. I mean, not not like mama, dad, dad. It was granddaddy, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, that may be disputed by other parties, but <laughs> at least it was an early word, right? And just yesterday, um, he's tired. You know, he's just kind of beside himself. I come to the rescue. I pick him up, and he's like, and, and when I pick him up, he always puts his head, he plants his head into my shoulder and puts his arms down by his side and just kind of snuggles, snuggles up to me, right? So I hold him, and I know what he needs. He needs a nap. And I, I began to, to, you know, sing to him because, there's, you know, there's, it's kind of my little thing. Is, and, um, of course, that, that deeper voice is rattling in my chest, you know, so it's, it's like this soothing thing. And he just, he goes right to sleep, right? And then I go to lay him down, and he goes, ape! Like, <laughs> I could, ah, he put me down in the crib! Ah! And it's not going to go back to sleep. i got to pick him up. I'm like, son, I mean, this is sweet, right? I love the fact that he loves to just snuggle up into my, snuggle up on my shoulder, right? I love that. But at some point, that's going to be awkward, right? At some <laughs> point, this boy is going to have to learn how to sleep on his own, you know, <laughs> 30-year-old grandson, I got to snuggle with granddaddy <laughs> before I go to sleep, right? That would be, that'd be ridiculous, right? So that, I, I think that's maybe the word sometimes to, to us as we are struggling in the faith is the, the word is grow up, you know? Grow up. If you know these things about God and you're not acting on these things, it's time to grow up. It's, it's time to sleep by yourself. It's, it's time to, to go into that dark night of the soul and, and feel what you were saying, that, 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 that feeling of abandonment. We, we don't need to be so scared of that. I mean, I don't want it. I've been there before. I don't want to go back again. But the other side of that feeling of abandonment is looking back and going, and yet you did not abandon me, right? I mean, the most extreme case of abandonment is Jesus hanging on the cross, and the Father seems to have abandoned him. Jesus is abandoned, right? And I hate it when I hear people say, and God turned his back on Jesus. I'm like, that is impossible. God cannot turn his back on himself, right? And yet, Jesus on the cross feels abandoned, utterly abandoned. But the rest of that psalm is but you have not abandoned me. Your right arm is, de- you know, he was delivered, right, from that abandonment. So if that's what happened to Jesus, right, and I'm going through some terrible thing, fill in the blank, and I'm going, God, I, where are you? I, I, you're not, I, I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. You're not listening. If you're even there, I, I'm getting no feedback here. 
Why have you abandoned me? Why will you not answer at least one prayer? I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and you're not doing anything. Hopefully when you get on the other side of that, you look back and you see how God was completely there. You know, he, he didn't abandon Jesus on the cross. It drives me crazy when people say he, you know, he turned his back on Jesus. Jesus is God, you know. He, he delivered him through that. Does that mean then that Jesus did not, did not feel abandoned? Does it mean that Jesus did not suffer? When, I mean, you think about driving nails into your arms and into your feet. He felt that. I mean, the real physical pain of that. And yet God had not abandoned him. The whole time, the purposes of God were being displayed in the heavenlies. Don't, don't you know? I mean, there, there's got to be heavenly beings that are looking down on the crucifixion and going, uh, I don't know why my angel's got a real southern accent. <laughs> Everybody's got a guardian angel, right? My guardian angel goes, hey, y'all, this ain't right. You know, it's just the angel's from northeast Mississippi, so he's got that... This ain't right, y'all. You know, don't I mean angels are left dumbfounded to what scripture says, right? And yet now the church gets to reveal in the heavenlies the purposes of God. The things that angels want to understand, the church has got it. So we we really we really should not be dumbfounded when we have doubts, when we have struggles, when we feel abandoned. When, when we're feeling those nails being driven in, that, that actually is something that we should anticipate. So, so you feel that way. So grow up. Embrace that. Embrace that suffering and walk through it. You know, How, what does Jesus say? When that, you know, the disciples are like, Lord, we'll, we'll, we'll go with you. Where, wherever you're going, Lord, we'll go. He goes, no, you can't. You can't do this. And he goes to the garden and he goes, if there's any way for this cup to pass, right? I mean, this is the creator of the universe dialoguing with the Father and saying, are we sure there's not another way here? I mean, mm-hmm. and yet when he says that this cup would pass, he knows the way it's going to pass. The only way this cup passes is when he drinks it to the dregs, right? When he, when he drinks that cup, that's how it passes, so why do we expect it to be different for us? Why, why do we think it should be easier, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, do you have any other thing? This is a good place to end. This is... Well, I mean, it, this is probably uh, the most important conversation that nobody ever has mm-hmm. because nobody wants to talk about it. Because I certainly don't. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, <clears throat> to be able to, I mean, this is the first time that I've ever like had these questions. I mean, I I grew up for twenty years, and you know, it was like going to Walmart when I went to church. You know, don't even it, everything was just given to me. Um, and so, like, to be in the first place ever to where it's, like, 
um, it's a lot of questions and, and not a whole lot of and, and zero answers. Um, and so like to break this, that silence and break that, I mean, it takes a lot of courage to like have this conversation with yourself and with other people. So, I mean, if you like, so definitely don't feel like if you're listening and you're having these questions that like that you're alone because uh, I think everybody does. I mean, I, I know everybody does. And so, um, yeah. You've got to make it your own at some point, right? I mean, I was raised in a Christian home, was raised in a Christian nation. I know that's debatable, <laughs> right? But I'm raised in, in the buckle of the Bible belt. Of course I'm a Christian. What else would I be? Would I be Buddhist? Yeah, exactly. Right? right? But at some point, that has to become my own personal relationship with God. At some point, that transaction has to happen in some way where I really take, I don't like this word, but it's, it communicates where I really take ownership of my own faith, yeah. right? Um, well, and it sucks. I mean, it's not easy. My relationship with Reagan isn't easy, and it didn't start out easy, and it's not easy today. Um, it's totally worth it, though. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I uh, just this past week learned of another couple that's probably facing divorce. I mean, unless something happens. And I'm thinking, it's so worth it if you'll work it out. It will be so worth it, you know. Um, and I, th- I think that's with the folks that, that are struggling. Uh, it ain't over yet, you know. As long as you've got life, as long as you've got breath, um, and as much as you kick and fight, it ain't over yet, you know. Um, I've, my friend in Germany feels like I'm an idiot because I'm still a Christian. I mean, he loves what we do in Ethiopia. That's wonderful. And I'm like, it's not wonderful. If what we're teaching over there is not true, it doesn't matter how many water wells we dig. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how many people we feed. If we're filling them full of lies, that's evil. That's not a good thing, right? <laughs> so, um, and I keep thinking about him, and I'm thinking... He's not dead yet, you know. He, I hope he comes back around, and I hope he doesn't do too much damage in the process, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, I just got to hold out hope for folks that are struggling because um, I've struggled, right? And I had people who were hoping for me. Yeah. Um, well, I really appreciate you being willing to turn this into a part two. Because it was it was good to stretch this out and not cut it short last time, so this was this was good. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah. All right, signing out. Hey, everybody! If you'd like to help us with this podcast, there are several different ways you can do that. One is to leave us a review. Another is to click subscribe. Um, You can share any episodes you particularly enjoy on social media for new listeners to hear. And also check out the show notes for where you can follow us because we'll be posting updates as this experiment continues to grow. So thanks for listening.